It's so good to see you all this morning. If you've been part of this church in the last four months and you've heard Pastor Chad or BJ or anyone else say, you know, we're praying for our Pastor Branziski who's been gone. I'm that guy. Nice to meet you. I love you. I love this church. I love Jesus even more. I'm excited to be back. I really am excited to be back. God has done. um, Thank you. God has done some sweet and difficult things in my life. And, and I'm excited to share a little bit of that as time progresses. But I want also to just spend some time in just saying thanks. Because I want to give honor where honor is due. And so, like, I am so thrilled to learn, sometimes the hard way, but to learn that, like, God is God and he doesn't need me. Like, I love the fact that this is his church and it's not our church. Right, that he's the head and we respond to him. And I love that you guys continue to lean into Jesus and to go after him and to continue to help other people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. Like I'm excited and thankful to hear the reports of what God has done in this church and through this church in the last four months, or even just like real recent of hearing what happened in Rwanda. Like that was awesome to hear what God was doing there. So I'm so thankful for you all. I'm also thankful that you endured some of the guys that I asked to come preach. Um, So I'm going to pick on three because there's three guys who um, mentored me and pastored me and are still great coaches in my life. Rusty Hayes, uh, Chris Dolson, and Brad Brinson. And whatever Rusty Hayes said about me is a flat-out lie, and I'll deal with them later. But I love those guys, and I'm so thankful that they said yes to coming and to serving and to preaching God's word. And they were tremendous. So I want to say thanks to those guys. Also, I want to say thanks to our staff for stepping up to the plate during that time. I want to say thanks to, yeah. Um, just want to highlight three specifically. Pastor BJ, who's hiding back there. Pastor Chad. I mean, they really picked up a a lot of my work, and I was really, really thankful for that. And also I want to thank Mary Ellen, who's done a tremendous job, a tremendous job. And uh, and also I want to make sure that you guys know as well um, how thankful I am for our elders. Um, I love the fact that they saw the need. Yeah, truly. They saw the need. They leaned into it. They encouraged it. Even when I was fighting and saying, no, let's do it in here. And they were just like, this is what's right. And I'm thankful uh, for their support. I'm thankful that they love Jesus. And I'm thankful that they walked alongside and kept, you know, all the things. And I want you to know that, like, some of you may or may not know the elders. But I want to let you know they are amazing men of God who love Jesus and love this church. And you can trust them. And so I'm very thankful to our elders this morning. Um, so I want to dive right in, and it really feels like I'm learning how to walk again. And so this sermon is knocking off the rust, so you're just going to have to deal with it. There's like so many things in my head and in my heart, and I felt pressed as I came into this week. I was just like, Lord, um, what would you want me to say on your behalf to the church this morning? And so part of me was thinking, maybe I'll just like preach on a theme of something that God was putting on my heart. But what pressed upon me was to stay in the book of Acts, stay in the message. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. And so if you want to turn there, that'd be great. I want to encourage you, get used to bringing out your Bibles, crack that book open. If you got a phone, feel free, use your phone. No texting, nothing else, just the phone. For the Bible, okay? In here. You can do that for 40 minutes, to which you all said, liar. Okay. 
I want to go back into this. This idea that the church is to be a movement. That was the heartbeat from the very beginning as we looked at Luke. And Jesus coming on the scene to bring the good news, to talk about the kingdom of God, to call people to follow him so that he could send them out. And then he dies on the cross, resurrects, come back on the third day, ascends to the Father. And we see immediately in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are like, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Like, when is it all going to come? And when are you going to establish all this stuff? And Jesus said, listen, that's none of your business. But you're going to receive power from on high when the Spirit comes. And when he does, you will be my witnesses. You're going to tell people and reflect what I have done. You're going to go to the ends of the earth and tell people about what I have accomplished. That's the heartbeat of the church. The church exists solely to be on mission for Jesus. The church is the body where Jesus is the head. That's why we exist. And if we don't understand that, then nothing makes sense in the book of Acts. And so we got to be mindful that we are on a mission. When we hear the word mission, it should make us think about an objective. It should make us think about facing obstacles, moving from A to B, that there's going to be crisis, there's going to be enemies in the way, about helping people understand. When I hear the word mission, it makes me think of like soul determination and grit and focus. And I think sometimes we fail to remember that the church is on mission. And we make it about so many other things. I want to read a passage to start this morning that I know you will find a little ironic as we dive into this text this morning. I'm going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read verse 10 through 15. You, however, speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. You have seen my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And then verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. That means more than just morals. More than just being a good church kid. This is about following Jesus. All who desire to live on mission will be persecuted. And things will get worse. Jesus warned us about this. And that's the question I want us to be asking on the forefront. Yes, it's a real lighthearted message this morning. But it's so important for us. That was sarcasm. i got to work on that again. Getting the rust off. What is our posture, church, in the face of threats, in the face of persecution? What is our posture in here when we read things on the, on the news or we watch things on the news that becomes very clear anti-Jesus? I mean, we got to admit this. Like, we live now in a culture that is not like pro-church. We're not even in like the non-church culture. We now live in a very much an anti-church culture where they see the church as an impediment to human progress. Where most people who are vocally and decidedly anti-Jesus see the church as a hindrance to life. And there's a lot of people who are just simply indifferent. 
But Jesus also said that all as the day approaches, persecution and threats and suffering, all of that's going to ramp up. So what happens in here, in our hearts? And I think we need to ask a more specific question than just dealing with the threats and the persecutions. How do we treat, behave towards, think about when we think about our enemies? How do you feel when you think about your enemies? And that could be a person, it could be an ideology, it could be a philosophy, it could be a system, it could be a group, whatever it is. And I know we all have them. And I know that we all struggle to love them, if we were honest. How are we doing that? If we are to be witnesses, who are we to be witnesses to? Isn't it to be those who are anti-Jesus? And if so, like how else are those who don't know Jesus ever hear about Jesus unless we go witness to them? Yes, that means our enemies. And sometimes we really don't like that. So we have to ask the question, if our mission is to move towards those who are anti-Jesus, how are we doing? How are we feeling, especially in light of all the things that are happening in our culture? And I don't need to name specifics. You already know. Regardless of wherever you fall on any political spectrum or opinion, the world has become decidedly against Jesus. Are you shrinking back? Or are you fighting sword with sword, word for word, tweet for tweet? Or are we moving towards them, praying for them? So we need to ask this question. And it's a great question. And it's a question that we should always, always, always come back to. And it's this, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Like, what is this message that we are to witness about? And additionally, on top of that is another question. What are the expectations and the results that should be flowing out of one who believes in the gospel? Now, there are a lot of things that the gospel expects from us as we embrace it. There's a lot of things that should be flowing out of our lives as we embrace the gospel. But I want us to focus in specifically on how do we engage, how do we act, what happens in here when when we are confronted by threats and persecutions. And what do we believe then about our enemies? What do we believe about our enemies? Because the reality is what we believe about them will determine how we behave towards them. So let's go into Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to jump back a little bit just to kind of set the scene. I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 7 which BJ already preached on about the stoning of Stephen when he was dragged in front of the court and he was sharing this beautiful, beautiful gospel message beginning from, the, from Genesis all the way up to now. And they couldn't even stomach it. They couldn't handle what he was saying. And just look at this, verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. Okay, total nerd alert. I, I, I'm always like, did they really? Like, what did that sound like? Like, could you hear it? Or did they just look really stupid? Like, isn't that, okay, moving on. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, almost like, no, we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. 
And then they stop their ears. So it's like, I just, I'm like picturing this. And they're going, <laughs> I mean, this is like willing ignorance. Like heaven is opened up and they can see this. They cast him out of the city and then they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That is important. The witnesses, the ones who brought up the accusations, they were the first ones to throw the stone. So they took off their garments practically so they could throw, but they laid it at the feet of this young man named Saul who had the apparent authority to approve of this execution, which was not a light thing. A young man named Saul who is carrying out with the authority the first execution of a believer. Where now the persecution and threats have moved outside of the leadership circle and now into anybody who says they follow Jesus. They're laying down their garments. Stephen is executed. He's martyred. And Saul sees it all. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was watching all of this. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And after that, there arose on that day a great persecution. A wave of persecution is now hitting the early church. We're talking thousands of people have now confessed faith in Jesus. And persecution is coming against this infant church. And because of that, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, which is fascinating. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. I mean, that's a powerful word. Ravaging. Ripping apart. Destroying the church. And entering house after house, he was dragging off men and women and implied in that are children, and he committed them to prison. What would you do? If you were in that scene, if you were part of those followers of Jesus back then, what would your posture be? What would your heart be? If Saul came to your town... If you were at the local coffee shop in some village there wearing your sandals, enjoying a nice cup of whatever. And some people are like, I think I know so-and-so. I think they're followers of Jesus. What would you do in that moment? This is an important question for us to face because it is no different than some of the things we are facing in our culture and will face in our culture. Only reason why I say it is because Scripture tells us it's going to happen. And so I want to jump back to Matthew chapter 5 and look at one of the greatest sermons that Jesus gave, the Sermon on the Mount. Thousands of people have come to hear about this new teacher, this new rabbi who's teaching with authority and healing people. And he starts this sermon speaking to his crowd of would-be disciples. And he starts giving these things called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, the meek. Blessed are this. Blessed are that. And all of a sudden he moves into this statement. It's like, blessed are the peacemakers. 
those who run into conflict, those who are quick to move towards reconciliation, either between them and another person or group to group, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of the Father, like sons of the Father. They're looking like God. And then the next line is like, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Rejoice greatly and be glad. Um, no. When people slander you and revile you and come against you for my name's sake, rejoice and be glad. They did this too to the prophets. And then he continues in his teaching later on in verse 43, 40, through like 47, he's like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor of yourself and hate your enemies. How conveniently teachers twist things for their own suiting. But Jesus then goes, but I say to you, I'm different. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Pray for him. For then you would be like your father in heaven. Jesus, are you off your rocker? I mean, like, he doesn't really actually mean for us to do that, does he? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Isn't the gospel the simple fact that you and I, who now profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, isn't the gospel telling us and reminding us that at one point we were enemies of God? That we too were following the ways of this world. That we too were under the influence of the powers and principalities that rule the air, Satan. Weren't we too once an object of God's wrath? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he came towards us. Isn't that the gospel? And if that is the gospel, then why do we find it so incredibly difficult to want to extend that kind of grace and that kind of love towards our enemies? And that's the radical love this world needs today. They need to see the radical love of God who came into this world to save sinners. We have to be reminded of this. There is great truth when Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted. It's going to come. Paul, which is the irony, was the one who was persecuting the church, says to Timothy in a cell before he himself is executed. And he says, if you're going to follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. Not might, you will be persecuted. But church, we live from a, and we operate from this posture of victory. Sometimes when we remind ourselves of the gospel, like not only do we have to be mindful of ourselves about how we were once enemies, but we have to be mindful that our battle in this world is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, but there's a spiritual reality that is infinitely more real than all of the materialism around us. We don't fight. We don't wage war with the same weapons that this world does. We wage war differently. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is 
a ruler on this earth. But when Jesus died and conquered the grave and descended, Jesus even said in John 16 that he has been judged. He has lost. The church is victorious. And now as the church, we are on this rescue mission to tell people about Jesus, that they don't have to be ignorant anymore, that they don't have to be blind anymore, that there is one who has saved them, one who shows infinite love and mercy and grace towards all people. That's the gospel. We have to be reminded, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the mind and the eyes of all people who don't believe in Jesus have their blinded from seeing the truth. Saul was blind. He didn't see the truth. He was ignorant and unbelief, which he himself would profess later. The church moved forward in the face of threats and persecution. And they did the very thing that we struggle to do. Because if this were to come in our camp, we would either do one of two things like fight or flight. Right? We would either like kind of shrink back and be like, we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to stir the waters. We're not going to push too hard. Or some of us just might get a little too aggressive. And we got to like throw off the truth in people's face and throw out these truth grenades. But we're forgetting love. Here's what I want us to say, what I wanted to say as we dig deeper now into this passage. If you believe in the gospel, if you believe in the gospel, you will become like the gospel. If you believe in the gospel, you will become like the gospel. The peacemakers, you're like your father in heaven. When you love your enemy and you pray for your enemy, you're like your father in in heaven, the love of Christ compels us. The gospel compels us to begin to pray and to move towards those who aren't like us, who are anti-Jesus. We don't shrink back from them. Because the reality is, is like if you believe in the gospel, you have chosen to believe some certain facts that are true about you. Namely, one, you were once an enemy of God. If you believe in the gospel, you are confessing that at one point you were an enemy of God. And therefore, you needed to be saved. Which is an offensive word because we like to not think about that. Because if I say I needed to be saved, what I'm then also saying is I am fully worthy of hell. And if that offends you, then you still think you have some shred of good in you. And that you're not an enemy of God apart from Jesus. And then scripture would be a lie. And this is a facade. But the gospel is clear. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies, he died for us. When we were enemies with God, we were made right because of the blood of Christ. When we were objects of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy... He saved us, not by our own doing, but by grace we've been saved. Through faith, our eyes have been opened. We were once an enemy. So now let's meet this enemy who seemed larger than life. Meet Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1. Paul, or Saul, Saul and Paul the same. I'll probably do that a lot. 
But Saul was still breathing threats and murder. Just, like how quickly we just read these things. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Nobody was stopping it. Like, like even if you continue to read, he went to the high priest. You don't get any higher up in Judaism. And he got letters to, to go to the synagogues. In other words, he got a blank check to go arrest people, right, wrong, or indifferent, just because they said, I follow Jesus. That was the crime. Found any belonging to the way, men or women, implied children, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This Paul named Saul, was a prominent, emerging young leader. The Pharisees saw a bright future for him. He was brilliant from the tribe of Benjamin. If you want to look at his credentials, Paul even goes off in Philippians 3 talking about that. He's got Roman blood in him. He has been given authority, a blank check. Word spread about this guy. He's an enemy of God. Stay away. Run away. You hear he's coming? Shrink back. Like, you've got to understand like that. That's a real deal. Imagine yourself feeling that, those feelings if you heard about Saul. And here's a, a startling reality. Saul actually thought he was doing a good thing. Saul actually thought he was doing humanity and God a favor. He, he actually thought that he was serving God by doing this. Because Jesus was a blasphemer, and the way is heretical and is misleading people. And in fact, it might even stir up Rome to come at us even more. Jesus even said this in John 16. He says that there will be a come a time when they're going to cast you out, throw you out of the synagogues, and they're going to kill you. They're going to murder you, and they're actually going to think they're doing God a service by doing this. Those who stand against the church or anti-Jesus, I'm willing to bet they actually think they're doing humanity a service by doing so. But scriptures teach us that their eyes are blind and that they're acting in ignorance due to unbelief just like you did once. And that should give us some compassion and understanding that it's a spiritual fight yeah, some people are evil, 100%. Paul thought he was doing humanity and God a service. In fact, he even thought he had the way figured out. Just like the world thinks they understand the church. The church is oppressive. It's judgmental. It's this and that. And Jesus is just a, a myth. He wasn't real. If he was real, he was just a good teacher. There's no way he did any of those things that they're saying that the church says. All that kind of stuff. The world thinks they understand the gospel. But they don't. And neither did we until Jesus revealed himself to us. And so when we think about Saul like this, like let's just be honest. Do we want Saul to get saved if you were them? Like do you want your enemies? Like I know our hearts, our Sunday school hearts want to say, yes, of course. But like come on. There's moments where I'm like, I like to go find the psalm when David cries out to God to smash their teeth out. I like to go to that one. 
Just being real. Like, is there any hope for Saul? Is he disqualified because he's persecuting the church? Because he's so bad that he's denied Jesus? Is there any hope for him? Is he completely disqualified? Would he have any purpose at all? Of course, we're all going to say yes because we know the story. But if you were there in that moment, what would you be saying? But let's just think about that for a moment because some of you might think that you know Jesus and you have it all figured out. There's even some of you in this room that even come to believe or have been told that you are disqualified from the grace of God because of certain things in your past. The story of Saul tells us clearly that nobody's disqualified by God's grace. Nobody's disqualified from his mercy. Praise God because that was all of us. Is there hope? 100% there's hope. And we know that because the gospel is absolutely radical. The radical nature of the gospel shows us the radical nature of God's love. We have a God who loves his enemies. We have a God who actively loves his enemies. More than just words, he loves indeed. What is love? I know you're thinking it. Some of you are even doing this. <laughs> Sorry. Knocking, knocking the rust off. Here we go. We have a God who loves his enemies. What is biblical love? We throw out this word grace. We even have cute acronyms for it. It's undeserved love. undeserved love. You didn't deserve it. Well, why? Because you were an enemy of God. But God who is rich in mercy has loved you. Love is self-sacrificing. There's no greater love than one lay down their lives for their friends. Like, this is God's heart. He loves his enemies. God is love, it says in 1 John 4. And to know God is to know love. Psalm 149, 145 verse 9, one of the names of God, he calls himself. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding abounding in steadfast love. He's good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. We see in Scripture that he causes the rain to fall on the good and the bad, the sun to shine on the good and the bad. That tells us something about the nature of God. John 3, 16, verse through 17, right? For God so loved the world. You could just transfer that word world for enemies. It works. For God so loved his enemies that he gave his son. We have a God who is completely radical. He loves his enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Then you are like your father in heaven. Isaiah 1, verse 18, he's reasoning with the rebels, with his nation that has walked away. He's like, come, let us reason together. Even though your sins are as red as blood, come on, look, come here. I will make them white as snow. God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says in Ezekiel 33. 
This God who loves his enemies is an active pursuit of his enemies. He is the God, don't laugh, he is the God who goads others to himself. He goads his enemies to himself. I didn't just have fun with that word. It's actually in Acts 26, 14, when Jesus was speaking to Paul. Like, why did you press so hard? Why did you kick so hard against the goads? And like, goads is not a word we use often because it's a weird word, but it's a word that moves something that is stubborn, that doesn't want to move. God is goading his enemies. He's goading all people to himself. He's trying to get us to move towards him. Think about your own life. Has God ever goaded you? Pursued you? Y'all should be saying yes because you're here. Believer or non-believer. He was goading Saul. And like specifically, think about this. Saul knew who Jesus was. He wasn't like Jesus was some historical person. He lived. Like, you got to understand, like, Saul probably had intellectual problems with the fact that they don't know where his body is. Saul is having a hard time computing in his mind. Like, why are believers, followers of Jesus, dying this way? Why did Stephen say what he said? And why did heavens open up when that happened? Those are all things that are goading and pushing and pressing against him. And Jesus says to him, why did you fight that so hard? I look at my life. For 19 years before I became a believer at the age of 19, I can see God goading me multiple times. Still, like the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And when I do wander, he's still goading me. We have a God who loves his enemies. And he's actively in pursuit of them. And he chooses people. Friends, he chooses people we would never, ever, ever choose. Think about this for a moment. If any of the 12 disciples ever applied for a pastoral position at a church, we would say no. They were uneducated. He didn't choose them because of their amazing pedigree. Nobody would choose Saul. Nobody would choose tax collectors and Zacchaeus. Think about this crazy story in the Old Testament with the prophet Hosea. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Who would do that? I want you to do it. Okay, well, she goes off and has an affair with him. And God says, Hosea, go get her back. And he's using that as a picture of how he is with us. I choose people people. I choose all people. It doesn't matter what your past has done. It doesn't matter where you're at. He chooses you. He chooses the weak. He chooses the shameful. He chooses all those things. It's so important for us to understand. He chose you. Who is fully deserving of hell. That's the radical nature of the gospel. We have a radical God. That it doesn't matter who you've been, what you've done, where you've been, none of that stuff. He chooses you. He moves towards you. He goads you because he loves you. And at the same time, because the church is his body, 
He asks the church to be radical in nature with him, to be his witnesses. You can't be an effective witness for Jesus if you refuse to be radical with your love. You can't. And so we see this story. I'm going to continue to read now in verse 4 on. Paul on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. A light comes from heaven and he falls to the ground. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. To which you got to be honest at that moment. So I was like, oh. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And so they lead Saul by the hand and verse 10 comes. Watch this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias replied, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, is this the pizza I ate last night? Are we talking about the same Saul, God, because um, the Saul of Tarsus that I know it's the one that is dragging people into prison and murdering them. Am I hearing you right? Yep. What would you do if you were Ananias? What would you do? Ananias says a phrase that we have to walk out of this room sane. In English, it's here I am. But in the Hebrew, it's henene. I want you to say it with me because I need you to wake up at this moment. And it's a fun word to say. Henene. Okay, you ready? Again. It's a weird word. But it's a powerful word, and it's only used a few times in Scripture. And every time it's used, something significant happens. Some change happens. We see this in Exodus 3 when God called Moses to the burning bush. He said, Moses, and Moses says, Henene, here I am. The boy Samuel, here I am. Isaiah chapter 6, who will go, here I am. Over and over, pivotal moments, this phrase is said. And here he's interacting with God. And he responds to God by saying, Hinene, here I am. And the meaning of this is at attention. You have my full attention. I'm in whatever it is you're going to ask of me to do. I am your servant. Go ahead. And he doesn't know what's going to be said. He doesn't know what's going to be asked. None of these folks did when they come and they say this phrase. It just means, I am fully present to you, God. You've heard me use this phrase before, a predetermined yes. This is what the gospel is. We trust you, God, enough that no matter what you're going to say, your heart is good. Your heart is loving. You are trustworthy. Here I am. It's a powerful phrase. It's a statement of faith. 
It's leaning back in trust. He's my shepherd. I'm on mission. I'm part of his body. Here I am. Okay, go meet Saul. I love, love, love the fact that Ananias decided and had the audacity to push back on God. So I want to say this because I think there's grace here. It's okay to be real with how you feel about what God asks you to do. God, I know about this guy. Are you sure? It's okay to be real, but not at the compromise of your obedience. Be real. Wrestle with God, but don't compromise your obedience. Because at the end of it, God's like, yes, go. And he goes. And he tells Saul, he braces him as a brother in Christ, and he tells him about Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. You don't know all that will unfold, but I promise you that if you're following Jesus and if you embrace the gospel, he will call you to move towards people who are anti-Jesus. What is your posture? Will you say, Hinene? Or will you just simply check in and decide what to do? If you believe in the gospel, you will become like the gospel. We love because he first loved us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live is his life. It's no longer mine. It's his life. God, I'm at present. And the reason why we can be at present, and the reason why this is so important, was that there was one person before any human ever said, Hinene, and his name is Jesus. Jesus said that to the Father, and he also said it to us. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 3. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, Hinene, Hinene. He's saying to his people, People who are enemies of God, who are rebelling against him, saying, here I am. Here I am. Jesus made himself available to the Father. I will go for God so loved the world that he gave his one and son. And Jesus said over and over and over, it's my joy to do the Father's will. It was a joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Praise God that we have a God who loves his enemies. Praise God that we have a God who pursues us. And praise God that we have a Savior who constantly says, here I am. Jesus. (laughs) See? (laughs) That was awesome. God's ways aren't our ways. Ananias had no clue what his simple yes of obedience would unleash in the history of the church. Had no clue. We grab onto Paul's words, this enemy of God, and we cherish him and we hang on to him and we use him in our darkest hours, but we got to be careful of hypocrisy. Because we love to say that nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ. Well, who wrote that? The one who was ravaging the church. 
an enemy of God. I want to challenge you. In our culture, in our time, we need to love radically. We need to have the posture, here I am. God, here I am. And if he says some things that are hard for you, hey, go towards this person. I want you to pray for this. I want you to pray for this group. Be real, but don't compromise your obedience. God's okay with us being real. But he wants to use his body, the church, to reflect the radical love of Jesus. And I I really, I'm not trying to like paint this fictitious picture, but you, you, you have zero clue, zero clue what your yes to Jesus could do. You have no idea what God can do through you. Ananias had no idea. And I, I got these pictures, and I'm going to end with this. And I remember, this is like probably one of the most impactful things for me in a sabbatical. I was in Rome for a day, and I went to uh, the Marmentine prison, which is where Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And in this prison, it's like this, like, basically a cave that's underground. And this is literally the same cell that he was in. And above it was this hole. And like, that was the only way that Paul would ever get provision is if someone came and dropped food through that hole or whatever through that hole. Paul wrote 2 Timothy there. And if you go outside of that, you see the splendor of the Roman Forum right there. The great city, the city of the Caesars. And you got to imagine like Paul, like my life, this was worth it in the midst of this great kingdom that's out there. And people were following Jesus, coming, bringing food to this prisoners about to be executed. Like it was worth it. We use his words to stir us up as the church. Ananias got a part to play because he simply said, here I am. I believe God can radically change Austin, Texas. I believe it to my core. And I believe he wants to use you to be part of that. Will we as a church say, here I am, even if it means loving and praying for my enemy. Because I remember I was an enemy. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's alive and active. And and I thank you that it's always loaded with grace, and it's always loaded with truth. Lord, we thank you for your remarkable grace that has saved us. We needed rescuing. We were an enemy. Thank you for showing us the love. God, we pray that those who are against you, who are maybe even indifferent to you, who aren't following you, God, I ask that you would open their eyes to see the glory and the splendor of your son, Jesus. Lord, would you use us, convict us in the areas where maybe the attitudes and dispositions of our heart towards those who are opposed to our faith. If we have judged them, Lord, forgive us. If we have acted um, in a way that is lacking of compassion, forgive us. 
Lord, we want to be like you. So Lord, we ask for your spirit to empower us to be like you. Give us the grace and the faith to say this morning and to live our days with this posture of here I am. Here I am. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.